Welcome to uh, Bethany Community. It is my joy to be here as well and be welcomed by you, uh, the sweet church family. Every Sunday, what an exciting time to gather together with brothers and sisters, to meet with the Lord, to express together His greatness, His goodness, and to encourage each other. We're going to talk about that a bit more today as we, as we look into Colossians chapter 3, but I want to express our, our greetings from Bethany Baptist uh, over on the other side of the river. Um, how sweet every time that I'm able to come here to see old friends and to meet some new ones and see what God is doing. I think it was over 10 years, just close to 10 years ago that uh, the Lord raised up this church and it's been fun to just follow her and your influence for the gospel. And uh, it's fun to think about the future as well, about what God is doing. Some of you I've known for 25 years since I, I came to Bethany. And uh, others of you I don't know at all. And some of you I've known <laughs> for shorter times. But, but uh, I want to let you know how much I love your pastor, Daniel. I uh, um, came to know him. I think he was about uh, 11, 12 years old. And so when we, we first had a relationship as, as I was his youth pastor down in Texas. And, and uh, just so thankful for him and his ministry here. And really, again, for this church. I... Uh, uh, for the first uh, eight years, we had a habit of coming uh, here every year, but I think it's been over two years. Someone told me that last time I was here, I went a little long. So that's why I chose today, we're going to talk about the topic of forgiveness. And uh, one of the beauties about the topic of forgiveness is that if I go long today, you have an immediate application. So we're going to look at Colossians chapter 3, but before we do, let's pray and ask that God would, would uh, speak to us. Father in heaven, we're grateful that every time we as a people come together to sing that you inhabit our praise, you're, you're present personally, uh, that when we come together to listen to your word, you are here personally speaking to us. I pray, O oh Father, that you'd fire up our hearts with faith, that uh, the word which you give to us wouldn't lie dormant on rocky soil or thorny soil or hard-packed soil, but that we would receive your word that is, that is living, it's active, it's from you, not just in a book, but it's, it's from you today to us um, I pray, O oh Father, that we'd receive it by faith, and that through that you would do a transforming work in us. You'd feed us, nourish us, and change us into the image of Jesus. I pray, O oh, specifically, as we take up this theme of forgiveness, that your Holy Spirit would work in this community as well as in individual lives. Lord, you know the inner workings of every person's relationships. You know where there are resentments and bitternesses that lie dormant that have not yet been yielded over through forgiveness or forbearance. And I pray, O oh Father, you'd work in us. We want to be free. We want to experience the fullness of your gospel. We want you to be glorified in this church family. And so, Father, help us to listen to what the Spirit would say to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God ties His glory in this world to His church. 
Particularly, he ties his glory to the manner in which we, his people, relate to one another in community in the context of the local church. Jesus said that the world would know whether we're disciples of Jesus by the way we relate to each other in community, by the way we, we love each other. The Apostle Paul doubles down on that when he says the whole goal of our instruction as apostles is love. Love from a pure heart, a sincere conscience, and a, a sincere faith. So when the church is weak in community, when it's weak in love and relationship, uh, the church is unable to communicate the greatness of God, uh, that uh, the message is sent out from the church that God is small, He's insignificant, He's not glorious. However, when the church is strong in love, first upward toward God, but also horizontally to one another, then the message of the church is that God is great, God is glorious, God is worthy of worship. I ask you the question, what happens when kids grow up in Christian families where their little ears hear their parents speak gossip and criticism and slander and bitterness against other fellow church members? What, what happens in that household? Well, those children hear a message. They hear the message that the gospel is really not true. They hear a message that Jesus does not really offer the power of reconciliation. If the gospel doesn't work inside of Christian homes and inside of the Christian church, how can we communicate that God is greater than all our sin? That God has delivered us from the domain of darkness that's broken, broken and filled with conflict and has delivered us into the kingdom of His Son whom He loves, a kingdom that is identified by its righteousness, its peace, its joy in the Holy Spirit. Where will people see God's glory if love doesn't prevail in the midst of God's people? A lack of love in the church is much greater than simply a loss of two people finding comforts in each other and simply uh, the damage of two people being miserable with each other. No, the loss is of the whole church in her ability to communicate the gospel, her ability to communicate God to a world that doesn't know Him and desperately needs Him. So it's for the sake of God's glory in this world, we are right to care about community in our own local church. Our part in building up that love quotient among the brothers and sisters in our own church. We're right to commit ourselves to say, as a member of this church, I am here to stir up one another to love and to good deeds. To be encouraged, but also to encourage. I love God's word in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. That, that word stir up, it's very active. And it's saying, how can my presence create a stir in this church where love and good deeds begin to rise to the surface? He says, not neglecting to meet together. You see, when we fail to meet together, we're unable to influence one another. So it's vital that we commit to meeting regularly to one, with one another so that we can build one another up. And he says, as is the habit of some already in the first century, some were getting in the habit of saying, ah, I prefer to stay home. It's going to be easier. So he says, when you meet together, you are encouraging one another. It's not enough merely to come to church and make it the habit. Well, I'm here. I'm sitting in my seat. I'm listening. I'm going to Sunday school class. 
God's calling us to, when we come to the assembly of our own local church, we come with an active soul. We come with a view, God has someone for me to stir up to love and good deeds. God has someone for me to encourage today, and I want to do that. I want to be part of that so that this church is able to communicate the greatness and goodness of God. And he goes on to say, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You all are a spiritual family. You're brothers and sisters, and I trust it's a joy to live life together. What a privilege we have to assemble weekly as a family to give praise to God, to listen to His instruction to us, and to care for one another. God designed His church to be a place where all relationships are reciprocal, where we receive encouragement and where we give encouragement. And we do this, God says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, our time to advance God's glory together in this broken world, it's drawing to a close. It, it, it could end at any moment. The end is near. Jesus could return. And so he says, in view of that, this is the hour. This is the time. Let's not wait any longer. Let's, let's move forward with being the church. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon from 2 Corinthians 1 that fired up my heart about the local church and about the hope of the future day when we stand before Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.14 reads this, on the day of our Lord Jesus, it's referring to that day when we stand before him at the, at the judgment seat of Christ as believers to give an account of our lives, where we receive rewards for the things that are done by God's grace and by his power, but receive rewards because we've taken the foundation that God set us on, the foundation of Jesus, and we build with materials of gold, silver, and precious stones. That's, that's the hope, that's the ideal. He says, on the day of Jesus Christ, you, and Paul's speaking to this precious local church in Corinth, he says, you all will boast of us, this ministry team, these apostles, these teachers, these elders, and we will boast of you. He's anticipating this future event where they stand before Jesus, but they don't stand before Jesus sort of in a private room. With each person saying, okay, Jesus, it's my turn, I'll sit down, and now you're going to tell me privately about my life. I'm going to give an account. Now, he envisions a room like this, where each one is called up, Jesus is here, and the whole church is gathered together, listening in. They have an interest in what Jesus says to each member. They say, I know this brother. This brother lived life with me. What is Jesus going to say? Because I want to behave toward them today in a way that when they get up here and sit in the seat for Jesus to share with them about the things they have or have not done in their life, their life, is that, that day is happier because I help them, I encourage them, I strengthen them. And I have a great interest. I want them to receive all the joy, all the blessing that they could have possibly received. And so the Apostle Paul says, on that day, he says, I believe you'll boast of us. In other words, when we stand before Jesus and you hear him issuing forth the reward for building upon that foundation, you'll realize that your love, your encouragement, your instruction, your help caused us to live a different kind of life so that we would have a better day, so that we would rejoice in that hour. And he goes on to say, and we'll boast in you. He says, that's what I want to see happen. That's what we're working toward, that that day's different because we were in each other's lives. 
Listen to Jonathan Edwards um, in this sermon. He says, ministers and the people that have been under their care must be parted in this world. This world is temporary, and none of these present world relationships are permanent. At least here, they're not permanent. We, we will be parted. We might be parted because your job moves you to another community. He goes on to say, uh, if they're not separated before, they must be separated by death. So death parts us from each other. He goes on to say, but if it be so, there is one more meeting that they must have, and that is on this last day of accounts, that we're going to all meet together with Christ. And he says, they, the members of the local church, will meet together as having a special concern for one another in the great transactions of that day. Have you ever thought about that day with that in view? That you're going to be standing before Jesus with your local church, not in the context of just privately, one-on-one, but with your local church. That was revolutionary to me to think about this. He says, so as to ministers and the people that have been under their care, they must especially meet and be brought together before the judge as having a special concern with one another in the design and business of that great day of accounts. Does it make sense that we would, we would have a very much of a concern about how people we love fare on that day? For God's glory, for the joy of his people, we commit ourselves to loving one another and working to influence one another to help make that future day the happiest day of their life. We want to be able to say to one another, on that day, you'll boast of us because you'll recognize that you had a big part in my life. And we'll boast in you because God gave us the privilege of having a great part in your life. I believe that my joy in God will be greater because of the love, encouragement, correction, and relationship that my local church has with me. I believe that. And I pray that that's true, that their day will be happier because of my influence in their life as well. We are a people who are in the process of progress. We've not yet arrived. We're still in a race, moving toward the finish line. And we're running in the place where God has, has, has set us. And we're moving toward that great end. And this morning, I want us to open up our Bibles to Colossians 3, verses 12 through 15. And God calls us to stir up love, but in a particular way. He calls us to stir up love through the grace of forgiveness. Without forgiveness, love dies in every relationship. We're all sinners, and if we enter into a deep enough relationship for long enough, we're going to sin against each other. We're going to make each other uncomfortable. We're going to rub up against each other in a way at some point that hurts. And if there's not forgiveness, then that wound will remain open. It'll ultimately bring about separation. And many people go throughout all their lives, relationship, hurt, leave, start another relationship, hurt, leave, start another relationship, hurt, leave. That's not the way God designed it to be. God designed us to be in relationship, we grind against hurt, forgiveness, healing, deeper relationship. That's his design. And that's the path that Colossians chapter 3 sets in front of us. Let's read it together. He's speaking to the local church, and he says to them corporately, in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, 
And if one has a complaint against another, Paul knows that's going to happen, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Forgiveness enables us to bring glory to God in our local church. And all glory to God is lost when forgiveness is fumbled. This is the main point we're going to follow throughout this message. As we think about forgiveness, we want to think first about forgiveness's foundation. And the foundation of forgiveness is the new life that God gave to us as a gift of grace in Jesus Christ. We ask the question, who is this command, forgive one another, who is it given to? And the answer, well, it's given to God's people, God's people who have new life in Christ, who have been transformed from the inside out. Notice in verses 3 and 4 of Colossians chapter 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. This old life that was a self-life, that was pursuing self-glory, self-direction, self-will, self-focus, that life is no longer, it is gone, you've died. And he goes on to say, and now your life, it's hidden. It's so glorious that if we could see it now, we would all be shocked, but that glory is hidden right now in Christ and God. But then he goes on to say, and when Christ, who is your life, that's, he is the source of this life. When he appears, then you and this new life you have in him will also appear. It will also be made manifest in glory. The command to forgive is given and directed to a people whose life is in Jesus. And the point that I would draw from that is that to lean in to obedience in forgiving our brothers and sisters is to lean into our new identity. It is simply expressing who we now are. As we think about this new identity in Christ, Paul gives us three terms that give a description of this new life. And you notice in verse 12, these three descriptions that Paul provides of who we are now, who we, who we are in Christ are provided. He says first, Number one description, put on then as God's chosen ones. Think about that, that if you're in Christ, you are a chosen one. Before the foundation of the world, God set his love upon you to be one of his very own children, to be in his family from eternity past all into eternity future, to be secure. And God made that choice while we were still part of a race that was in sin, in rebellion against God. While we were still enemies of God, God set his love upon us. So God didn't choose us because of our great moral character, because of our talents and something we could do for him, because of our resources, some way that we could benefit his kingdom, because of our influential positions, some power we could exert to help his agenda on in this world. God, God did not choose us for any of those reasons. Why did God choose us? And the answer is he chose us for his good pleasure. There's no explanation outside of himself in his sovereign wisdom and sovereign grace. When we have difficult time forgiving a brother and sister, we are right to remember 
that God embraced us. He chose us. He drew us to himself while we were his enemies. Think of that. That's who we are. Secondly, God says you're holy. Put on then, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy, holy. When God calls us holy, he doesn't mean that we no longer sin. We do still sin in this world. We still need to confess our sin to God daily. God communicates, however, when he calls us holy ones, that we are set apart from this world to himself to live a life of praise and honor and glory to him. That now the course of our life is bent upward toward the advance of his name, not downward into this world or into ourselves. God chose us in Christ so that we might be instruments of worship. And not just individual instruments of worship, but that we as a local church would be an instrument, one instrument working together in relationship and community with each other to worship God. He chose us in him. He chose us as holy ones. This means that the way we live individually and the way we relate to one another has one goal, and that goal is the applause of God's name. It is in this view that we are holy ones who are set apart to bring glory to God that God says, so forgive one another. This is who you are, so forgive one another. The third description, and this description overwhelms me, he says, um, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy, and he says, beloved. The NIV reads, dearly loved, as dearly loved people. To think that we would be dearly loved by God, that we would be adopted into his family as sons and daughters, that, that his affection set upon us is infinite, unending, unbreakable. So when God gives us the command to forgive one another, it's not a command with a, with a threat. If you don't forgive one another, I'm going to kick you out of my family. It's, it's a command with a promise. You're dearly loved. And now as one who's been accepted and embraced into this family, care about this family, and use the, resource, the resources of this family, and, and live out the character of this family, so that you'd forgive out of the reserves of the love which God is pouring into your heart, love one another through forgiving them. That, that none of us have love tanks that are empty. That if you're in Christ, your love tank is never empty. You never say, I don't have any more love to give. That's never true. Because is our, our very core of our identity is that we are dearly loved by God. Our new identity motivates and empowers our commitment to forgive one another. Let, let me use a feeble human example to share how I think this works in the heart of God. I have three sons. They're uh, almost all grown. The last one's still in college. The first one, um, he lives in, in Texas with his wife and child. He's a dentist for the Air Force. The second one lives in New Jersey, and he lives there with his wife. He's a pilot for the Air Force. And then the third one lives in Missouri. He's a student at Truman State. And I love every one of my sons. And I don't just love them and love my relationship with them, but I love their relationship with each other. And as a dad, I care about their relationship with each other. So when I call them on the phone, I'll talk to them about their life and I'll build a relationship and bring encouragement to them. But invariably, one of the things I ask my sons is, hey, have, have you called your brother lately? And what's your brother talked to you about lately? 
I'm interested in that. And I know they all have incredibly busy lives, especially the pilot. It's going to be deployed a week from now. Pray for him and the others who are serving so that we can worship without having any threat of some foreign power marching in here and, and round us up. Incredibly busy lives. And as young men, they're not all thinking about things that are not right in front of them because what they have in front of them is, is really hard and is really full. And so I ask him, have you called your brother lately? And often, yeah, I have, or no, I need to do that. And then I'll later hear about that. And it rejoices my heart to see that my kids care about each other when they travel long distances to visit one another. I almost rejoice in that as much as when they travel long distances to visit me. That's, that's the heart of this dad. Now, what would happen if one of my, my sons hurt through sin another of my sons, and the son that was hurt was so hurt, he says, that's it. I'm done with this relationship. I don't care about my brother. I don't, I don't want to ever see him again. What would happen if one of my sons set resentment and bitterness upon another of my sons, upon his brother? Well, a number of things would follow. Let me name three. First, uh, my heart would be broken. It would be broken with grief over the disruption of that relationship that, that I count as very dear because these boys are in my family and I care about how they relate. It would diminish me. Secondly, it would not just affect those two boys, but it would destroy a present-day community that's precious and valuable. Our whole family wouldn't enjoy the kind of celebrations, fellowship, shared burdens that we do now if even one of them refused to forgive one other. And third, it would not just affect this present time, but it would negatively impact generations to come. It would impact their children and their children's children, and what joy would be forfeited. Now again, I know that my love for my boys, it is very feeble and failing compared to God's love for us. The love of God toward us, it's unparalleled, infinite. But I use this weak human illustration to paint a picture of God's heart. What would happen if when Jesus walks through this church, he sees a brother who says, that brother over there, I'm glad they're at the opposite end because they hurt me and I don't really want relationship with them anymore. What would happen? You know, Jesus walks through his church. He sees both what's, what we see, but he sees more. He sees into the hearts of each person he cares Revelation 2 and 3, that's the whole message. He's walking inside of every church given evaluation. And what would happen if Jesus saw in one of your hearts a root of bitterness? Well, I'll tell you, it would grieve him deeply. And it would impact not just those two, but it would impact others in your sphere, their fellowship. It would impact not just now, but it would impact what was happened five years from now and ten years from now in this church. All because of a root of bitterness that creates corruption. God says, you're my chosen ones, you're my holy ones, you're dearly loved children, so forgive one another. For the sake of my name, for the sake of all that's good in my kingdom, forgive one another. You know, Jesus, he's very personal in the way that he cares for us. And the way that he pursues peace in his church. By the Holy Spirit, Christ 
presses forgiveness against us. And I think every Christian understands a bit of, of how Christ does that internally, through the Word, through the fellowship. We've all experienced it. I'm going to tell you an incident about 15 years ago that happened to me that really pressed it home to me. There was a, a person, a fellow Christian, who sinned against me, and they really hurt me. And I believe they hurt me uh, consciously, deliberately. And so uh, when that hurt came to me, I, I said to myself, I'm not going to forgive him. I'm just not. I don't want to release that. I want to hold on to this, uh, hold on to this accountability that I'm holding against them for their sin in my life. And, and immediately, the Spirit of Christ began to speak to me. Rich, you need to forgive. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do it right now. And I kind of shut off that, that voice. All through the night, periodically, I'd try to get away from that voice kept coming out. I, I laid down my head on my pillow, and the last conscious thought that I had was the Spirit of Christ saying, Rich, you need to forgive this person. I, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to call. I'm not going to talk to him. I don't want to forgive. And, you know, I know Ephesians 4. I know the command that says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, on your wrath. Don't give the devil a foothold. But I was, you know, I felt really justified at that moment. So I, I slept. I woke up. The first thought in the morning, Spirit of Christ said, Rich, you need to forgive this person. He, he wouldn't let go of me. And, uh, you know, I, I showered. I got ready. I had an early morning breakfast appointment, a discipleship appointment. There's another young man that I was meeting with and uh, going through Bible study with him. And I had to meet him at 6 in the morning. It was a snowy day. I'm driving over there. And the whole drive over there, I was trying to get away from this, the spirit of Christ communication. You need to forgive this person. I was saying, no, no. I, I finally got to the point, okay, maybe next week, but not right now. Still holding on to this grudge, this resentment in my heart. I get to that restaurant, I walk in, I see my friend, okay, I have my smiley face on now, and I sit down with this friend that I'm discipling, and th this friend, no kidding, he didn't say good morning, he didn't say, hey, how are you doing, none of those nice, he says, pastor, I have a question, first thing, uh, pastor, I have a question, okay, I have my Bible open, tell me, what's your question? He says, how do you forgive someone who's hurt you when you really don't want to? Do you think God is personal? Do you think God cares whether we hold on to a root of bitterness and resentment? And I gave him a beautiful biblical answer. And the whole time, the Holy Spirit was just, I was still too proud to tell him, you know, I really need this question. But the Holy Spirit, pow, pow. And by the end of that breakfast, I was broken. I, I called up that person. And I said, you know, I, I was wrong for my hard heart. I want to pursue relationship. I want to pursue reconciliation. And after God crushed my willfulness and my hardness, and there was a softness and a peace that invaded, I thought to myself, why did you wait so long? You know, bitterness and resentment, it makes us feel so good for a time. There's always a pleasure to sin. There's always some kickback, and it feels like, oh, this is good to hold on to this. But when we replace that with the fruit of God's Spirit, there is such a difference. It's it's not the pleasure of hardness, but it's the pleasure of complete peace and joy that pervades. When we obey God, we never, ever get hurt by that obedience. That's the issue. We always receive blessing. The foundation of forgiveness is our new life in Christ. The meaning of forgiveness is a release from guilt and separation. 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Here's the definition that I would present to you of forgiveness. Forgiveness means that we leave justice in God's hands, that we don't hold the wrongdoer personally accountable to make his or her sin right with us. Forgiveness releases them from the guilt of their sin and seeks to repair the separation that their sin caused. So in other words, we no longer say things like, I'll never forget what you've done to me. I hope what you, you get what you deserve. Have a good life. This is the last time we will likely talk. Forgiveness means we move past our bitterness and resentments. We keep an open heart for reconciliation. We know reconciliation requires the others to have a soft heart too. But forgiveness is offered ahead of reconciliation. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Now, a dictionary definition of forgiveness only goes so far. God has given us so much more than words to help us understand forgiveness. He's giving us, given us the great example of Jesus. And that's what Paul points us to here. He says, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Think about Jesus as your model, as your example, as your shepherd showing you the way to forgiveness. And as we dwell upon the forgiveness of Jesus... Four words come to mind that describe his forgiveness. First is costly. Forgiveness is free to us, the sinner, the offender. But Jesus suffered infinitely, not for his own sins. He had none, but for ours. Forgiveness always requires a cost to the one who is offering it. To offer forgiveness is to freely pay what the offender owes as a result of their sin against us. Now, our forgiveness does not mean that God releases them from the penalty due to his law. That's between them and God. But for us, it means that we release them from the penalty due to us. You don't owe me anything. I'm not going to hold you to that. And it means we also sincerely pray that they will be released from God's judicial judgment. Jesus prayed for his tormentors, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Stephen, the first martyr of the church, similarly prayed as he was being stoned to death, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The cost of forgiveness is often unimaginably great. It is the cost that caused C.S. Lewis to write, forgiveness is beautiful until you have someone to forgive. (laughs) It's costly But Jesus' forgiveness is also complete. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Complete. Jesus forgives not in part, but in whole. Every sin, every part of sin is canceled. Partial forgiveness is not forgiveness. Forgiveness never releases someone from most of the offenses they've committed against us, but holds on to a particular few abuses. 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record Not just a sloppy record, but no record of wrongs suffered. All sin is completely devoured by the blood of Jesus. Not one part of our sin escapes his blood's cleansing power. Forgiving each other as the Lord himself has forgiven you, so also you must forgive, Paul says. It's costly. It is complete and it is continual, continual. Jesus does not forgive and then afterwards change his mind and accuse us. Now in our flesh, we're prone to take back a commitment to forgive another person after we've made it. We might say, okay, I forgive you, and we genuinely mean it at the time. 
But forgiveness doesn't always release us from the pain of that person's sin. It's possible to have forgiven. In fact, I think it's frequent that we forgive a person and yet we still experience the pain of that sin against us. So what do we do when the next morning we wake up and we're still in pain from the hurt of that person's sin? Well, we're challenged, aren't we, spiritually? Will I continue in this commitment of forgiveness or will I walk away from it? And we may have to enter deeply into our commitment to forgive day after day, week after week, year after year, perhaps for the rest of our life. It may be that we might suffer pain for the rest of our life depending on how deep and pronounced that sin is. But forgiveness, as Christ forgave us, is continual. I'll never go back and hold on to bitterness, resentment, and hold that sin against you. Forgiveness is a commitment of our future selves to daily release the offender from the guilt and separation his or her sins deserve. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. The final word is compassionate. Jesus' forgiveness is always warm-hearted. It's never served cold. It's the kind of forgiveness that longs for restored relationship. It doesn't say, hey, I forgive you, but keep your distance. I really don't want to have any relationship with you. It's warm-hearted. It's compassionate. That's what Jesus does toward us. He forgives and he draws us near. The father of the prodigal went beyond accepting his son back home. He lavished compassion and love upon him. He was warm toward him. He says, put a ring on him. Put a, put a new robe on him. Kill the fatted calf. The son of mine was lost and now he's found. So verse 14, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you are indeed called in one body. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. I want to speak briefly of the motivation of forgiveness. There are a lot of reasons why we should forgive. There are a lot of benefits we receive from forgiveness, but but the, the motivation that, that Paul presses here, and I think that is the most pronounced motivation in all of Scripture, is the glory of God who forgave us is in view. Why should we forgive this person who's hurt me so badly? The bottom line is because I care that God would be glorified. And if I don't forgive, God won't be glorified, not in my life and not in my church. I'll impact that negatively, and I want to impact it positively. A lack of forgiveness will rob God of his glory in his church. The gift of forgiveness will bring much glory to God in his church. Look at verse 17 with me. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. We can't hold on to sin, hold on to grudges, hold on to resentments in the name of Jesus. We can only forgive in the name of Jesus. And then it says, giving thanks to God, giving praise to God, giving glory to God the Father through him. God, I want my life to be a life as an expression of gratitude, an expression of my joy in you. Our ability to glorify, glorify God is directly tied to our willingness to forgive our brother or sister after they have hurt us. Again, it is in this way, in this broken world that is filled with conflict, filled with with shattered relationships that everyone is asking, what's the answer to all these shattered relationships? And the church has the answer, but now when we're not forgiving one another, we can't present to the world that we have an answer for the problems of school shootings 
or the problems of this racial divide or the problems of every other conflict that this world experiences if we're not forgiving one another. The glory of God is at stake, you see. It makes a difference about whether we are able to communicate God is great, He is glorious, He is good, He's the answer, right? Well, we still come to the end of ourselves. I don't know if I can do it, though. This is so hard. And that's the last thing I want to talk about, the resource of forgiveness. We could never forgive one person, one small sin, were it not for the power of the Spirit of Christ working in us. I want you to think for a moment of having a conversation with Jesus about this issue of forgiving a brother and sister who hurt you really badly. You're saying, Jesus, I'm not sure if I can forgive them. I don't know if you understand how hurt I am. And, and Jesus reaches out his hand and you see the nail prints. And he says, yes, I completely understand how much suffering and how much hurt you endured at their, at, 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 from their sins. They say, but Jesus, it's not safe for me to forgive. I need to protect myself. And Jesus looks at you and says, but I'm your shepherd. I'm your savior. And I promise you, I promise you, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you'll never need to fear any evil because I'm with you. My rod, my staff comfort you. In fact, here's my promise to you about how secure you are when you're with me. He says, I'll set a table before you in the presence of your enemies. That person who is malicious and hateful and wants to hurt you, forgive them. And I'll set a table for you in the presence of you'll be able to just eat and enjoy that meal, even though they're sitting apart from you, growling and wanting to tear into you. Because I'm with you, that's how I'm shepherding you. And I tell you this, when you follow me, that goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life, and then you'll dwell in my house forever. That's your future. But Jesus, if I forgive, am I not just letting them get by with a wrong? I feel that justice demands that I not forgive. Jesus says that wrong is incredibly great, but refusing to forgive is a greater wrong still. In injuring you, he has sinned against man, but in refusing to forgive, you are sinning against me. But then you say, okay, but I don't know if I have the strength to forgive. I've tried before. It's so hard. Yes, I know, child. I, but I am with you always. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You can do all things through me as I strengthen you. You see, forgiveness is an act that requires supernatural power of God's grace. I want to close with a couple application questions. Number one, first one where it all begins is are you forgiven? This is for a people who have come before God with their sins and said, God, I, I can't clean, clean up my own heart. These sins, they're vile, they're foul. I deserve eternal condemnation, separation from you, punishment forever, and I cannot wash myself of these sins, not through any actions, any good works, any religious activities. But I understand that you sent your son Jesus to die for me and when his blood touches my sins, it disappears. And I need you. Have you been forgiven by God? It's only in calling out to Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and that kind of helplessness and that kind of confidence in Christ that you are forgiven. Call out to God today. Second question. 
Who is God calling you to forgive today? For many of you, there's a specific person that's been rolling through your heart and mind, and you've been trying perhaps, I don't want to talk about that person, let me talk about this person. (laughs) And the Holy Spirit keeps bringing back an individual, an event. It might have been recent, it might have been years and years ago. Don't make a list and begin at the bottom (laughs) and work your way up. Let the whole Lord make a list and begin at the top. Whoever that person is, know that Christ can strengthen you. Begin there, and I think it's like, it's like dominoes. Everything else will follow. But crack that baby right there with the gospel of Christ. Then third, ask the question, is there anyone, God, who you would have me to confess sin and ask to forgive me? Show me where I've wronged them. Let me be the one that go and say, I, you know, I, I, I think I wronged you. Would you forgive me? And the last question I would have you ask as we apply this word is, will I be a church member in this local church that is committed to stirring up love, that is committed to raising up the, the quotient of God's glory in our church through my activity, that when I come, I'm going to come with a view, Lord, you have someone for me to encourage today. And I want to discover that every Sunday, every time we meet together, I want to discover that. And I want to be your servant. As each individual gains a vision and a passion for God's glory in that way, this church will, will explode with light, will explode with the gospel, will explode with fruitfulness for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you forgive us. I pray for this church. I pray that you would help her, assist her, strengthen her and work in her today through your word in a powerful way. Thank you, Father, for being our shepherd. Thank you for providing us with a sufficient Savior. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.